Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAT Podcast with your host, Phil Hawkins. And Asai Calderon Muñiz. All right. Today we're going to be talking about talking. I'm super excited because uh, we're going to be talking about language. And there's some of my favorite theories and, and ways to look at the world um, that we're going to talk about today, specifically like linguistic relativity is something I think about way more often than I probably need to. That's just kind of like bouncing around in my head. Um, but I'm pretty excited about this. I, I don't know, uh, Azai, how do, how do you feel about language? I love language. Um, I'm someone that I've always been interested in children learning languages, but then I'm also an adult language learner. So I started picking up Brazilian Portuguese in undergrad and have actually used it with some patients. So, and it's something that I really want to get better at. So I am all here for language. Holy cow. <laughs> um, yeah. Impressive. Um, I know you have like the, the Spanish, like linguistic stuff in your past as well. So um, I figured you'd have some interesting, interesting viewpoints here, but we're going to be talking about like the AAMC's views and like theories, like the stuff that they test on why we develop language, what happens in our brain and the areas of the brain, um, how language shapes and changes the way you think. And so all of those are, are really interesting topics. We're, we're going to start out on why, like why do humans do language? And there's, there's a couple of different theories for this. Um, the first one is the learning theory. And this is, this is uh, just to, to recap and like make sure everyone's familiar, this is looking at section 6C of the AAMC, nope, 6B of the AAMC's uh, psych outline. Um, it's at the very end of 6B, right before 6C starts. And so the learning theory, um, first off, it's kind of a, a weird name because all of these are theories on why we learn language. But the learning theory is the one that was championed by B.F. Skinner. And I, honestly, I think like remembering it's Skinner's theory helps you understand so much more than just remembering the name, the learning theory, because Skinner was all about operant conditioning, right? And so whether whether you increased a behavior, that if you did increase the behavior, it's because you were rewarded and it was reinforced. And if you decreased a behavior, then you did that because it was punished. And so according to Skinner, like, why do we learn language? It's because it's reinforced. And so a baby will make a lot of weird noises with their mouth and, you know, like, like ba-ba and ga-ga, and they'll say ma-ma. And then all of a sudden the mom freaks out and it's like, oh, awesome, great. And so there's this like reinforcement where the baby's like, oh, I should, I should do that more often. I should make those specific noises. And eventually that ends up creating language. And so language is just a product of our um, punishments and reinforcements, which is a very B.F. Skinner idea. Yeah. And I can, I, I'm sure plenty of us can, can think of examples where this could apply. Right. So um, my mom always likes to say whenever this comes up in conversation, which it doesn't really much any anymore. Um, but growing up, she always would give me the word in Spanish and English at the same time. And that was her way of making sure that I would pick up both without theoretically, and this was not the case, but without theoretically favoring one more than the other. Um, and she always uses milk as an example. I don't know why milk, you know, but we're going to go with it. Mom, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry for putting us both on the spot. Mm -hmm. um, but she would say, okay, you know, she was like, I would tell you, like, I would hand you the milk. Right. And, um, and so I would say, okay, so she would say that this is, or not hand me the milk. She would like hear me say milk in whichever language. And then I, she would give me the milk. Right. So the idea there is that I'm being rewarded with what I'm asking for, um, which is that reward versus punishment. 
she doesn't give examples of punishment, you know, but the, the idea here is that she, they're rewarding you for, for what you're with, what you're saying for what you're saying. Um, and so that is very BF Skinner like, um, so yeah, I, I, I'm sure if, uh, if we ask our parents, they can say something along the lines that would, um, support, uh, the, the learning theory of language. Yeah. You kind of think about like, you know, babies like babbling and like laughing and things and like parents are always mm-hmm. encouraging that. And so like that yeah. would lead to making some noises that are actually like, you know, useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, we can also think of just like names that we give, you know, um, other people in our lives. And so like, I don't know why, right. My brother is now Bubba. No one else is allowed to call him that, but somehow that became, you know, he must've thinking about if we look at it in the context and the light of this learning theory, um, then somehow he must've reinforced, you know, me saying that with respect to him. And that became his new name, nothing to do with his actual name, but somehow it, it stuck. Um, on the flip side of that though, we have the nativist theory of learning. So, um, with nativist theory, you should be thinking Noam Chomsky if, if I mispronounce his name, please let me know pronunciation no. and I, we don't get along. No, that's, um, that's absolutely it. Noam Chomsky, <laughs> super interesting guy, by the way, if you want to like fall down a Wikipedia hole, he's got some really interesting <laughs> stuff going on. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that for a weekend. Um, yeah. But yeah, so his idea wasn't that um, we reinforce language, but rather that language development is kind of innate. It's genetic. And so even if you don't have these interactions with other people, if you are exposed to the language, you will learn the language. The idea being that some part of our brain um, is genetically wired for this, and uh, he called it the language acquisition device. And so the idea was that this LAD, as exposed, um, will produce language. And so the infant is, in a sense, capable of learning the language on their own. So as you can imagine, this theory doesn't hold a lot of water these days um, because there is not a single location in the brain that is able to learn language on its own without some you know, influence and interaction with, with the world around us. This yeah. would be as though, you know, we just Phil, as an infant, you you learned Portuguese. And so, yeah. you know, there was that part of your brain that was just like, yep, this is what we're picking up, right? Um, in the absence of interacting with anyone who spoke it somehow you would still be able to learn the language, which we know is not the case. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with this. And there's also some really important vocab to be aware of. Like, I know you said language acquisition device, and that's that's a term that you might see that as an answer choice on an MCAT. And so you need to know the language acquisition device is a part of the nativist theory, which is sometimes called the biologic theory and related to Noam Chomsky tie all of those things together in your brain, right? Noam Chomsky, nativist, otherwise known as biologic theory and the language acquisition device. Um, And there is some stuff kind of going on with this with, um, there's been studies on like twins, like babies, if you put them together, actually they will start to kind of develop their own language and they'll start to like, it won't be like Portuguese or French or something like that. Um, But they will still be able to like communicate in a way that's not actually like a language that anyone else speaks. And so there, there is a little bit of something kind of going on there with, with that. Um, but I think one of uh, Noam Chomsky's biggest um, reasons for, for leading towards this biologic, like that there's something in us hardwired to develop language. A big portion of this was based on his research with feral children. Um, so feral children are people who were like not uh, taken care of 
when they were, were raised. And that, that doesn't mean like they're running around in the, in the woods with wolves, although that would be a feral child. Um, but even kids who are like locked in a closet and the parents never talk to them and they just like throw food in there or in the basement. And like, it's, it's a horrible, horrible, um, sort of scenario, but like from the point of like language development, there's a lot of very interesting things that occur there. And it turns out like, if you, like, if you don't rescue that child by a certain point, um, if they reach like the age of 15 or 16, all of a sudden after that, they will never master language. They, they will never, like they might learn a word for food um, or for like clothing or shirt or something, but they won't have a good understanding of grammar. And like, for example, like I ate an apple and an apple was eaten by me, both mean the same thing, right? Um, it's just like two different ways to say that. Now these feral children wouldn't be able to understand and grasp the grammar that those both mean the same thing. It's a little bit too complex. And so what that means is, something is changing biologically. Like there's something where a five-year-old can do it, but a 15-year-old can't. And that's that's kind of weird, right? The fact that like, you know, just talking about cognitively, like as you get older, generally you get smarter, but something happens after a certain phase where you can't pick up language and you can't become fluent in a language. And that's where um, that the critical period comes in, that there's some critical period where a language acquisition device inside our brain is searching and trying to make sense and pick up language around us. Um, super interesting overall. Um, there are some definitely some holes to be poked, but there's something going on with like biology here that that does, it's more than just, you know, operant conditioning. Yeah. And if you think about it, anyone who's tried to learn a language, like a new language as an adult has experienced some of that difficulty, right? Like picking up the vocab is very different than trying to piece together the grammar. And if you ask someone who um, is like a native speaker of a language that may not have had the, the formal, um, you know, like grammar teaching that goes along with it, they can still tell you, oh, that's grammatically correct. That's grammatically incorrect. Right. Whereas that same kind of um, fluency and innate understanding of, of the language is a lot more difficult to pick up once you're an adult. Um, yeah. So that's that's also something else that's um, similar to, yeah, some, to what we've been talking about, the critical period. Some also, like some great examples of that, like like even if you get, weren't lectured on this, like most people know when to use the word a and when to use the word an, like you just kind of pick it up and like, it's, it's easy. Um, and so if you went like your whole life, like speaking English, like even if you never learned the formal rules, like no one ever lectured on it, like you figure it out, you pick it up and you can use that correctly. But if you're trying to learn Spanish or something, um, after you're an adult, it, it becomes very hard to like recognize because there's some differences in grammar. Like for example, like there's masculine and feminine nouns and like, what, like that doesn't make any sense, like from somebody who speaks English, but as somebody who speaks like a Latin language, like, yeah, it's, of course it makes, it makes sense. It's innate. And so there's like five-year-olds who understand this and like use it perfectly, but there are, you know, 25-year-olds who are struggling <laughs> with how to use these, like the, the masculine feminine stuff. And so, you know, kind of goes into that like sort of like bio, biological hardwiring thing um, that, Noam Chomsky slash nativist slash the bio, bio, biologic theory um, all care about. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely parts of the brain that are, that we know are involved in language, and we'll get to those later. Um, so that's something to keep tucked in in the back of our listeners' minds as mm -hmm. we go through this. So um, so is it, is it me next with the social interactionist? Um, yeah. So the social interactionist is this like third 
theory on why we develop language. And the social interactionists, they said, okay, it's it's not like a biological hardwiring. It's not a a um a, a, a operant conditioning thing like a, with BF Skinner. It's more about just people want to communicate, right? Like I want to communicate. And it turns out language is a really good way to communicate. And so we want to be social. And so imagine that you're like a, a three-year-old and you really want a cookie. The problem is the cookies are on top of the fridge and you're only three foot tall. And so like, that's, that's a problem. Now, if I could somehow communicate with this, you know, six foot tall adult nearby, that would be very useful to me. And so like the, there's this, this kind of like idea that like, I want to communicate and it doesn't even necessarily have to be something like, you know, get me a cookie. Cause that kind of goes into operant conditioning and like, oh, you're kind of conditioned to do that more, but even just to communicate, to explain how you feel like I'm sad or I'm happy and people want to communicate. Um, Like think about people being lonely, right? Like they want to communicate with others. They want to have social interactions. Turns out language is just really useful for that. So the social interactionists, they're focusing on the reason we develop language is because we want to socialize and just language is a great way for that. Yeah. As you were saying that, um, so I think folks who are listening at this point in time know that I'm, I'm a medical student. So this made me think of a patient um, who I was, in this case, it was a standardized patient. And uh, I noticed that they were kind of not answering the exact question that was being asked. And um, they said, oh yeah, this is my, this is my socialization. Like this is how I socialize. And it's not that, you know, going to the doctors is Uh, you know, inherently a way to socialize, but just the act of talking to someone else for whatever reason it might be is so powerful. Right. And so I'm just imagining this older gentleman just saying, this is, this is my socializing, you know, when we're thinking about why do people want to talk, right? Why do people want to learn language? That's so funny. Um, I feel like everyone in COVID can relate to that. Like I get excited to go to Costco to like talk to (laughs) the cashier, like just making small talk, like how about that weather? And like, that makes my day because I'm Mm -hmm. like, you know, at my desk at home all day. Um, But yeah, absolutely. Like people have this, this drive for socialization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And kind of thinking about the, the environment that we find ourselves in, right? So we have other people in the environment um, and that's why we want to learn language. The way that we also learn language is influenced by our environment. So Piaget had this idea where the way you interact with the environment, the way children right, interact with their environment is going to affect their language. And so we have these schemas, right? These ideas in our head um, that kind of are, are in a sense a blueprint of um, how we go about things. And so we can assimilate and accommodate to our environment. So assimilation being changing somehow our, our environment around is right via language in this case, um, and accommodating these the information from our environment into the schema that we have. So the way we experience language and the way we develop language is also influenced not just by the people we interact with, but by the environment that we're in in general. And if you think about that cookie example, right, it's, new, not, it's not too far off. So I want to somehow be able to change, right, my environment, language is a fantastic way to be able to do that. And to get that adult to give me the cookie um, just depends how how sneaky or how convincing you're able to be as a three-year-old to get that cookie. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's like a really interesting thing trying to figure out how all these things go. And so I, I just want to clarify, this is the same Piaget from like the cognitive development, right? Like the, the different phases as we kind of grow, like the concrete and um, pre-operational and formal operational levels, the sensory motor, might as well mention all of them. Um, but 
he also had some views, obviously, because he cared a lot about the cognitive development and like how what things happen in our brain. T- talking about like language is a portion of that. Now, I don't know if that's specifically tied to the social interactionist, but it is something to just like another perspective for students to understand that Piaget does have some views in here about just kind of like interacting within with environment overall. Now, something I think is really important for students when they, this is this is something that should be happening like all throughout the outline, all throughout your studying, is you need to stop and ask yourself, like, how is the MCAT going to ask this? How is the, how are they going to apply this? Um, how, how am I going to be tested on this information? I think when it comes to these theories, I think one of the easiest, best ways to, te- to test this is in the context of like a Roman numeral question. Like they'll give you some scenario, like, you know, uh, a child is raised in a white room with nothing in the room other than a TV that is constantly playing YouTube videos just randomly. There's like a food shoot and like stuff like that. And so they're being taken care of like physically, but um, other than that, nothing else going on. Um, And so then you have Roman numerals and they'll be like, oh, which of these theories under, under which of these theories would the child develop language? And so you'd have like the learning, the social interactionist and the nativist theories. Now the learning theory, like, wh- what do you think about that? I'm, I'm, I'm curious to kind of like throw this to you as I, cause I don't think I've, yeah. I've asked you this question. Um, so under so which if, of these theories would they develop language? Yeah. So the learning theory, right. Um, BF Skinner, we're assuming that there's operant conditioning. We're assuming that there's some interplay with another individual in this white room where only YouTube videos are playing you're not really getting that interaction. Well, I, sh- I should be careful with the word interaction, but you're not getting those rewards and that punishment. So you wouldn't expect language to develop in this circumstance. Similar, let's tie in the word that I just used. Um, so interaction, right? So the idea that we're learning language in order to interact and communicate with other people doesn't really apply here either, right? So we wouldn't expect the child to learn language under this condition. However, they're being exposed to language, right? And so they have no other form of exposure, nothing else to to influence um, their understanding of language. So the biological or nativist theory could still have the development of language because according to that theory, right, there's some language acquisition device. And so the child has is biologically wired to learn this language. Um, also really quickly, I wanna make a plug for this. Um, so the way that we just worked through that, right? And the way we reasoned, okay, this wouldn't work because of X, this wouldn't work because of Y, and here this could work because of Z. This is what you guys are going to be doing as doctors when you're trying to figure out what's wrong with a patient. And so getting used to this process now of you know, saying, okay, this would work, this would not work for these reasons and having concrete reasons. Sometimes it seems like, oh, that's, that's something that we, you know, we do automatically. It's not always automatic. And it's really important to get used to and comfortable with that. So the psych section is a great way to practice uh, your differential diagnosis for the yes, future. <laughs> exactly. That, that's exactly what it is. Um, I always like to ask that question because a lot of times the students will be like, well, what if they're trying to talk to the people in the videos? And I'm like, well, okay, if, if you, like, if you're a baby and you're like trying to talk to the people in the videos, then maybe under the social interactionist, you would develop language. But like, ah, the way that I, you know, kind of set it up, it's probably not going to be. Um, so that is something, like, occasionally a student will catch me on this. Like, well, if this occurs, I'm like, actually, that's a great thought. And the idea of trying to communicate as the motive for developing language and the social interactionist is good. But I agree completely, uh, as I, that's, that's exactly how I would would set that up. Um, And so like another kind of like to turn the page a little bit to talk about another topic about how the AAMC likes to discuss language 
is is not just it's not all about just why we develop language. It's about how language changes us. And this is this is one of my absolute favorite topics to talk about of all time. And I know I've already kind of uh, hinted at this before, but this is the influence of language on your cognition. So the languages you speak, the words you know, changes the way that you think. And so there's a couple different um, theories in here. Uh, this is sometimes called the Worfian theory or the Sapper-Worfian theory, named after the two researchers, Sapper and Worf. Um, and, and basically their whole premise is it, basically, you have these these words, and these are how we think about the environment around us. And if we have extra words, that means we can have more complex thoughts. And if we have less words, we can have less complex thoughts. And th- there's a lot of, there's a lot to this. And like Azai, you can probably perfectly relate to this. But I have I have a friend who has a degree in evolutionary linguistics, and so like all the time, I'm like talking to him. He's my friend because. He knew all the Latin for anatomy and physiology. And I'm like, Joe, what does this mean? And he's like, Selaturska means Turkish saddle. And I'm like, that does kind of look like a saddle. Thanks, Joe. He eventually became my best friend because I needed all of his language knowledge. Um, But like he he would sometimes talk to me because he like spoke like Hebrew and French and like his degree was in like evolutionary studies and language with an emphasis on middle French. That's actually his degree. And I'm like, that's a weird, weird um, degree, Joe. Um, but occasionally I'd talk to him and he would say, like, he's like, okay, there's this, there's this word in Hebrew that means, and he's like, I can't really explain it to you. Like, because there's not really a word in English. And so he's trying to explain this to me and like, I I can't even understand it because I don't have the, the language for it. And he's got the language so he can understand this idea. How am I supposed to come up with that idea? on my own, right? Like that's pretty much impossible. And so this, this linguistic, um, there's kind of like two forms of this. There's the weaker form, which is linguistic relativism. And then there's the stronger form, which is linguistic determinism. Um, basically linguistic determinism says the language you speak determines the thoughts that you have versus linguistic relativism is the idea that the language you speak changes. There's some relationships between there. But the ideas here are that the way that you think and see the world is dependent upon your language. Another like really awesome example of this, I have like so many ways I like to talk about this, is um, I don't know if anybody's read the book 1984, but in the book, there are there's the language police and they are they're like changing the words. And so they're like the society and government have decided to ban the words like rebel and pride and fight and things like that with the idea that eventually the people who know those words will die off and the people who are being born and brought up in this world won't have those ideas. And so they won't be able to even think about having a rebellion because they don't have the words for rebellion. And so the, the language that they're speaking is changing the way that they will interact and see the world overall. Um, one last example, cause I love this topic is the movie arrival. I don't know if anyone has seen this with Amy Adams. Super good. It's homework now um, for all of you guys. Uh, But basically the whole idea here is um, Amy Adams plays a linguist. And so aliens come to earth and it's her job to try to communicate with them. And they have their own language. And in the process of learning their language, it changes her. And so she 
sees the world differently and sees the universe differently because she has learned their language. And so I feel like that whole movie should just be called the Worfian hypothesis or linguistic relativity, because um, that's really what it is at its basics. But this is a super interesting thing because it means like in a way, the more language, you know, the better you are with your words and the more, the more words you can, you can put together, the more complex thoughts you can have. And so like what you are able to conceive of and imagine is, is influenced by how many words, you know, and like how well you can put those words together, which is a super interesting kind of strange way to think about the world. Yeah. And just to throw in another another example, um, you guys might might get tired of them very soon. Um, but if you think about the premise behind cognitive behavioral theory, uh, uh, therapy, right? Not theory, therapy. Um, the idea is that the thoughts that we have, right, that language influences our experience, our feelings, right, the way we interact with the world. And so it's not the same thing. But the idea is that it's similar. It's language, right? Thoughts, thinking, having an impact on emotion, we'll get into emotion another time, um, a whole, a whole uh, topic in and of itself, um, but emotion, our experience with the world. So we have examples of this throughout our, our daily lives. And Phil, yes, I can totally agree with the whole, I have a language, I have a word in this other language and I want to be able to share the idea, but I can't. Um, so what I've started doing now is just telling people it roughly translates to, and then a really rough translation. And then trying to like piece together something, you know, related. Um, I had a similar experience with some friends. There's a fruit in, um, in the Caribbean. It has many different names, but one of the names is canepas. It's like a Spanish lime. Um, and in trying to describe like how you, how it tastes, right. I'm like, well, I have like a word for it here in this link, but I, I have no English like way to corroborate this or English uh, comparison. And so I ended up just giving up and letting, just saying, just here, try it yourself. <laughs> that's, that's the only way to go about it. You, I can't explain it. You're just going to have to experience it. Um, but yeah, we, we definitely see this all throughout our lives. And uh, you mentioned, um, oh, I wish I knew exactly what it was. You mentioned uh, the person learning, learning language. Um, I'm going to have to get the name of that movie from you afterwards. Arrival. Yeah. Arrival. Okay. Arrival. Um, so you mentioned the, the linguist learning, um, learning the new language. Right. And so let's think about like how we actually produce and how she could have learned that language, not from a theory perspective, right. But from the actual brain, what parts of the brain are involved in her being able to eventually understand what they're saying, say, you know, be able to use their language. Um, and so there are two main parts in the brain that are responsible for the comprehension and the production of language. And so the first is Broca's area. And so if you think about where it is in the brain, hopefully this will make sense what it does. So it's in the frontal lobe, right? We think about the frontal lobe being involved in reasoning, higher order reasoning, planning, right? So this should probably be involved in the component of um, the component of language that's planning, right? So we have to understand, comprehend in order to be able to say. And so we have that with respect to Broca's area. And then we also have Wernicke's area. And so in Wernicke's area, you think about um, where it is, it's by the temporal, what's in the temporal lobe, right? So this is auditory. So when we think about what happens if we um, have an injury to these parts of the brain or more likely a stroke, right? So not getting blood to these areas of the brain, what's going to happen? So in Broca's aphasia, the person's going to have a lot of difficulty producing language. And so they're going to, they're going to have trouble also reading and writing. 
um, not just spoken. So that's something to, to kind of keep in mind. So with Broca's aphasia, this person is going to have more halted speech. Um, the grammar is going to be a lot more difficult, those things we take for granted. Whereas in Wernicke's aphasia, it's really interesting. The person will just talk, right? So they can produce the language, but they can't actually, um, they can't understand what's what's happening or what you're saying to them. They, it's, um, it's just, like, I feel like the connections are all like messed up and like what the words mean. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they're just going to, so the words that they're saying, the sentences that they're saying aren't actually going to make any real sense to anyone who's trying to understand them because um, Wernicke's area with the comprehension, right? And I think I, I may have had that switched earlier. So I, I want to make sure that I correct myself. So with Wernicke's area, right, they are able to produce speech, but they have no way of integrating that speech with the world around them. So it's not useful. Whereas with Broca's area, because it's in this planning region, right? You can't plan to produce something. So you're going to have trouble with the production of speech with the um, being able to actually say what's what they want to say. So right. if I ask someone with Broca's aphasia, right? Um, what hey, What on. is that object over I, there? Or I feel like we should mention aphasia, like yes, what that sorry. means. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so aphasia is going to be difficulty with language. Uh, it's just like a general language deficit. As you notice, I used it with both respect to Broca's area and Wernicke's area. So it can be a deficit in language, either with the production or the understanding of language. Yeah. Um, you, you hear this a lot in, in medicine overall. Like if you see an A out front, it means like something's broken with it. So aphasia means broken language. So you're not able to speak. There's also anosmia, which is you can't smell and aphagia with a G like that's like macrophage, which means big eater. So aphagia is like you can't eat. Um, and so aphasia is like an inability to speak and communicate. Yeah. And thank you for, for pausing me there. I no, just, that's fine. I definitely went on. Um, so yeah. So just to recap, right. Broca's area, frontal lobe, the planning in the production of speech, really difficult. So I'm going to have trouble writing something down. I'm going to have trouble saying what I want to say. And so it's going to come out a little halted. Um, but if you tell me, Hey, what is that object? Right. I'm able then you point to it. I can tell you what it is. Um, I know what you're talking about. So I may just be able to say parts of the word, right. Not, or part of a sentence, not the entire thing. Um, with Wernicke's, right, this is temporal lobe. So this is closest to the auditory, the primary auditory cortex. And so this is going to be an issue with language comprehension. So I won't understand what you're saying to me and the speech that I produce. I can talk, I can talk your ear off, but you're not going to understand what I'm saying because it's not really going to be meaningful either. Yeah. I always like to help me remember the difference between Broca's and Wernicke's. I always remember that Broca's sounds like broken English. Like if you speak to somebody who is not fluent, this is, Broca's is sometimes called non-fluent aphasia as well, because it sounds like you can't actually like make fluent sentences. And so if somebody asked me like, like, what do I, what do I do for a living? And I had Broca's aphasia. What, what I would, would respond would sound something like this. It'd be te teaching medical, um, teaching, um, like 
students. Uh, like, it's just like really hard for me to like, I know what I'm trying to say. Like, you know, I teach pre-med students, like helping them do well on the MCAT and get into medical school um, and do well in medical school. And that's, that's what I'm all about. But like, I, I know this, but I'm having trouble making the words. And so it comes out kind of broken versus Wernicke's is a weird word. And so it's the weird words. Um, so if somebody asked me like what I do for a living, my response would be like, uh, scuba gear, turkey salad, Timbuktu, uh, red herring, fish stick. And like, that makes sense to me, but like, obviously that doesn't make sense. And like, it's like, it just comes out well. It's not like broken English. So Wernicke's aphasia is sometimes called fluent aphasia. Cause imagine that you didn't speak English and you heard me talking like that. Then like you would assume that this person is fluent and they can just kind of like rattle stuff off. And so that's the difference between like Broca's aphasia and Wernicke's aphasia. Um, I do want to just kind of like throw out, there's some awesome YouTube videos um, to help you understand Broca's aphasia and Wernicke's aphasia. One of my favorite is there's a, uh, a speech pathologist that goes on a cruise with a couple of um, patients that had had strokes. Um, one had Broca's aphasia and one had Wernicke's and they like videotaped both of them. And it was like, a, it's like super useful to watch this videos and like, oh, that's what it is. That's what Wernicke's is. That's what Broca's is. Um, and so kind of understanding this, because this is important, like, as you mentioned, like this happens with strokes, but it could also be like tumors or like a traumatic brain injury. Um, and so there's lots of different reasons why like a specific region of the brain might get damaged. And so you can kind of tell some things with Broca's aphasia and Wernicke's aphasia. One, one also thing I, I do want to mention, this is something that the MCAT has asked questions about. So just this like pause, burn this into your brain. Um, these areas tend to be on the left side of the brain. And so I always remember language is on the left. Um, the MCAT might ask you questions about like, there's something wrong with the brain and one side can't communicate with the other. Um, and so it's like a really interesting thing. If you hold up an image and the image is being processed on the right side of the brain and they have a split corpus callosum, which means that the right side of the brain can't communicate with the left side of the brain. So you could show them an image that is being processed on the right, but that can't get to the language, which is on the left. And so if you ask them, let's say it's a picture of a cat, you ask them, what is this? They'll like stare at it like, uh, uh, I know what it is, uh, but like they can't connect the, the, the image perception to the language portion. Then all of a sudden they move that picture of a cat to the other side and they're like, oh, it's a cat because now the image is being processed on the left, which is where language is. And so they can connect those up. And so it's like a really weird thing just by like moving the picture from one side of a patient's face to the other, they can tell you what it is, or they might not be able to tell you what it is, depending on which side of them it's on. The MCAT has asked questions about that. So it's important to know that Broca's and Wernicke's language in general is on the left side of the brain. Asterisk, most of the time. I feel like there's always like weird exceptions in neuro, like, uh, like 90% of the time it's on the left. And then the other 10% of the time it's on the right. Yeah. I remember when we were talking about this in class, um, my brain immediately want to go to the vasculature. I was like, Nope, no, we're not doing vasculature. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> someone asked, Oh, what about in people who are left-handed? And the reality is actually, apparently most of them will still have their language center on the left. So it really is in the bulk of just about everyone, the language center is going to be on the left side of the brain, which if you ask me is a little wild, especially when you think about, you know, oh, someone's right-handed versus left-handed. Mm -hmm. Not doesn't not as as huge of a um, differentiator as we might think in that regard. With respect. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to know if people have situs inversus, if they still have that. So situs inversus is when all the organs switch sides of the body. Um, it's a super interesting thing because their heart will be on the right. Just a little bit strange. If you're ever a physician and you're like, 
trying and you meet a patient with situs inversus, you're like listening for the heart and like, they don't have one, they're dead. And I'm like, <laughs> and it's on the other side of the, the chest. Um, but yeah, so this is all the stuff about language or most of the things about language that the MCAT is like we'd ask you about, like why we develop it, those different theories, the learning theory, the nativist slash biologic and the social interactionist. There's also uh, Piaget's views on the like accommodation and assimilation. Um, there's also the influence of language on cognition. Just a reminder, that's the Worfian or Sapper-Worfian hypothesis, which has a strong or weak version. Linguistic determinism is the strong. Linguistic relativism is the weak. And lastly, we have the aphasias, Broca's and Wernicke's aphasia. And so understanding what's going on actually like structurally in the brain um, for all those future neurologists out there, um, there's a good chance you'll come across a patient or two that has aphasia. Um, and so this, this, this actually might be useful to you to like understand kind of like what's going on like in your actual day-to-day -day life in the future. <laughs> And hopefully you're all enjoying getting to learn a new language, the language of the MCAT with us. Um, and with that, go ahead. You already know what to do. Let us know what you think of um, the podcast so far, and we will see you next time.